Good morning, everybody. We are not going to reward the unpunctual by waiting for them. Because, as you can see from your syllabus, we have two, three? Yeah, three chapters of Mark that I left for the last day. So I was looking at this and thinking, why did I do that? And then I remembered, I thought it was going to be Clint's problem. (laughs) I thought that this would be, that Father Clint would be here teaching this and not me. Joke's on me. (laughs) The best laid schemes. It's okay, though, because we're going to hit highlights. I mean... It's the crucifixion and resurrection. They're all, you know, there's no, uh, no, no shortcuts we can take, but the good news is we can always keep coming back to it. So we will hit highlights. We will, in the course of this, be reviewing all the things we've talked about all semester long. So there will be less line-by-line Bible study, more kind of you know, looking at sandwiches and things like that. We will see, I mean, we may have to, like, get through the garden and then go straight to the resurrection. Just kidding. Not really. That's not how it works, unfortunately. Um, But we will just see what happens. Thank you. Also, today is, of course, the Tuesday Bible study, end of the semester Christmas party. Please stay after small okay is it like really loud and echoey or is it my brain we're good okay typical um please stay afterwards and enjoy lunch with us even if you didn't bring something we always have plenty of food so (laughs) please stay after small groups um and enjoy lunch let's pray the lord be with you Heavenly Father, give us grace to put away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now, in the time of this mortal life, in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that when he may come again to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to life immortal. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's dive right in with Mark 14. We are going to do some jumping around. Again, we can't really talk about everything. We're going to spend a fair amount of time in the Garden in Gethsemane um, because it's frequently under-preached. So there are some parallels going on. That, okay, the sound is making me crazy. It's too loud. Thank you. I thought so. I can't, I can't live like this. My uh, my ability to be irritated has gone up dramatically <laughs> in the past. I'd be shocked to hear. Okay, I'm turning everything down. How's that? Is that a little better? Okay, good. Now that that's out of the way. <laughs> It's no being handed over to the Romans, but gosh, we suffer. (laughs) 
Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. We'll start with just a couple verses. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. When he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, Why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, whatever good news is proclaimed, wherever the good news, literally in Greek, the gospel, is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Okay, we'll go all the way through 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. So this first, chapter 14, is full of contrast. Jesus is anointed, and we'll talk about what that means, by an unnamed woman, and Judas plots to betray him. So look for these contrasts where, um, where faithfulness is contrasted to deceit, where people are coming in and going out. Look for these contrasts. They're sort of the, the inside-out Mark and Sandwich. It's two days before the Passover. Exodus, the, yeah. So interesting, right? So, great point. This scene, the anointing of Jesus, is in all four Gospels. It's one of the few scenes that's in all four Gospels. However, they are all very different. In, um, let's see, did I write it down? Yes. In the, in John's gospel, they're at the house of Mary and Martha. And Mary is the one who anoints Jesus. And she anoints his feet, not his head. They're in the house of someone named Simon the leper. We don't know who this person is or why he is named. It seems likely that he is a friend and disciple of Jesus, possibly a leper who Jesus has cleansed. So a leper who has an active skin condition, um, is unclean. But as we know from the lepers who are healed, he can go and show himself to the priest and become ritually clean. So it seems likely that this is a person who is a friend of Jesus, um, a disciple of Jesus, possibly one who, who had benefited from 
a, a deed of power from Jesus healing him? Great question. It's the only time in the Bible he's mentioned, and we don't know who he is or anything else about him, which is interesting. Keep in mind, this is two days before the Passover. What is the Passover? The high holy feast commemorating what? The Exodus. God's single greatest act of redemption up to the point of the cross. So, when you are hearing the story, this is what I mean by hitting the highlights, when you are hearing the story of Jesus and the Last Supper and the sacrifice and the burial, hold Exodus in your mind. Go back and read the story of Exodus, of the flight from Egypt, the plundering of Egypt, the giving of the law, because all of this is in the water, theologically. Politically, keep in mind that the Passover is the feast of God's liberation of his people. This is why Mark 14, 1 to 2, the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus. Remember, Jesus has been stirring up the rabble. Jesus has been being provocative, and they're thinking, oh no, there's a revolution coming because it's Passover. That's when you throw off the bonds of oppression. Now, you would hope that the chief priests and the scribes, faithful children of Israel, would want to throw off Roman oppression. But remember, they have a deal with Rome. And so we're going to see Jesus's, um, his betrayal comes from both Jew and Gentile because they've made a deal for worldly power. There are multiple references in this woman anointing Jesus' head. Kings and priests in the Old Testament are anointed by pouring oil on their head. Saul is anointed this way by Samuel. Doesn't go great. David is anointed this way by Samuel. A little better. Um, priests, priests of God are anointed by pouring oil on their head. But, so this is a, a royal anointing. She is proclaiming him king. Like, you know, the people, the crowds. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Spread their cloaks. The king is entered. But Jesus says something interesting. She has anointed my body for its burial. This is one of those contrasts. Jesus does not interpret this as merely a royal anointing, but as an, an embalming. That she, in a sense, this has been a prophetic sign that this unnamed woman does to prepare his body for burial. So Jesus, I mean, gosh, the disciples must have been like, Jesus, you're such a downer. Because every time you come in here and we think the revolution is coming and that you're going to be our new king, you keep talking about dying. This is like not happy times. Note two, Messiah, always remember, Messiah and Christ means anointed one. So in this moment, in this sign, the, 
the opening of Mark, the good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed, the Son of God, is beginning to be fulfilled. Up until this point, Jesus has been the capital M Messiah, but he has not yet been anointed. So a few other little hints from Mark. The jar is costly. It's an alabaster jar. This is a rare material. The verb here for breaks literally means crushes or shatters. It's a dramatic word. The perfume flows over Jesus. And the people are scoffing at the cost. What are these all symbols of? Sacrifice. In the temple, you remember, like, we eat meat all the time, but to offer up a lamb is a good amount of your family's income for the year, where its body will be broken, its blood will pour out, and will be used in the Exodus story to anoint (laughs) the lintels of the house. For the Passover of the Lord. And people will, people scoff at the cost of this, of sacrifice. You know, could not this money be given to the poor? Isn't it a waste to just, you know, to, to kill these animals um, as a burnt offering, right? You take an animal and you kill it. This isn't what you do in the Passover. It's what you do at the Day of Atonement. But you take an animal and kill it, and it is completely consumed in fire to create a fragrant offering to God. And we see elsewhere in the Old Testament people scoffing at the cost of this. But can you do anything greater than offer God, who gave you everything, everything you have. This woman, by her action, seems to get what the disciples are missing. He is priest and victim. He is savior and sacrifice. He is the king who will die. She seems to get it in this action. Contrast that with Judas. Judas Iscariot is, we're reminded over and over again, one of the twelve. That is to say, Jesus' inner circle, his very best friends. Which shows you how, um, how deep this goes. Note the sober nature of this description. Mark just says he went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Other Gospels feel like they need to give more framework to this. Matthew says that Judas is motivated by money, that he is greedy and he wants money for Jesus. John says that Satan had entered into him, which is pretty explicit. Acts says that he betrayed Jesus um, for seeking of personal gain. Mark doesn't need, Mark does not see the need to make Judas an extra evil demonic figure. Why? Mother Barbara opinion. Because everyone has the capacity to be Judas. Judas is not more evil than you or me. 
He does not need to be super bad in order to be the one who betrays his friend. All of us have the capacity, because we live under the condition of the fall, to do what Judas does. Mark 14, 12 to 31. I'm not going to read the whole thing because we don't have time. But I will point out um, a few key things. Note a Mark and Sandwich, a parallel here with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In Mark 12, uh, where do you want us to go and make preparations for the Passover? 13. So he sent two of his disciples, saying, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. This is similar to the instructions about going to get the colt. We see the parallel here. Jesus is entering in to something. In what way is the entry into the upper room similar and different to the entry into Jerusalem? Interestingly, one connection here where um, Jesus says, you will find a room furnished and ready. That word furnished means spread with cloth or cloaks. So just as they spread their cloaks before him, this room has been spread with cloaks to receive, receive the king. We see here, um, as they are eating dinner, this begins in verse 17, they have prepared the Passover meal, and Jesus says, Truly I tell you, amen, I tell you, one of you will betray me who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and say to him, one after the other, Surely not I. This is when the disciples, they're just so human. It's so good. It's such good writing. So a fellowship dinner, eating with people in the ancient world, is a sign of trust. Um, Jesus is saying, one whom I trust is going to betray me. And interestingly, each disciple is a little bit concerned that it might be him. (laughs) Surely not I. Am I going to betray you? The answer to this question is yes. Judas does the handing over, but all of the disciples scatter. And this we we are going to get to later um, in verse 26 and on. There's going to be a key verse from Zechariah that's going to come back over and over again. But first, we have this narrative of the institution of the Lord's Supper. In verse 22 through 25. Remember, Mark is written um, in about 70 CE. After Paul, Holy Communion is already an established practice. 
So Mark's readers would have, have heard Jesus saying these words and recognized them as what, as the mystery in which they participate every week. Christians from as far back as we know, from the very earliest days, celebrated the Lord's Supper together on Sundays. Let me see what I actually have in my notes instead of just freewheeling. Oh yeah, this is interesting. So Jesus, as you know, takes the bread, blesses it, and breaks it. What is this a mirror with? The feeding of the 5,000. Take, break, give. This motion is repeated. This is the first mention of bread since the disciples did not understand about the loaves when they were in the boat. Remember that little scene where he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees? And they're like, it is because we only brought one loaf of bread. He, he's mad that we didn't bring enough bread. This is the first mention of bread since then. Take, break, give. He then, and this is different from the 5,000, takes the cup. Drinking of wine, um, a fellowship cup, a blessing cup, the shape of this service. So this is key. People sometimes get this wrong. The Holy Communion is not the Passover meal. The institution of the Lord's Supper is not the Passover meal. At Passover, you eat lamb. There's no lamb mentioned here. (laughs) But it does say they prepared the Passover. But in Jewish table fellowship, after the meal, there is this... um, this, this blessing fellowship ceremony in which bread and cup would be passed and shared together as a symbol of unity. Jesus is giving that a whole new meaning. So he takes the cup and says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Covenants are sealed with blood sacrifice, the pouring of blood. Some ancient manuscripts say, this is my blood of the new covenant. This is what we say in the liturgy. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as oft as you shall drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus doesn't say all those words in Mark because it's Mark. (laughs) But here's the thing. Mark just says covenant. He does not say new but it doesn't matter because Christ is the God of the covenant. He is the God who promises to free Israel. He is the one who passes over Egypt. He is the one who leads them through water, through death into life. So of course it's the blood of the covenant. But now, gosh, oh man, guys, I'm so glad I made it to this class. But now... (laughs) This, the covenant between God and his people, the covenant made on Sinai and then broken and then made again and then broken again and then made again, renewed over and over again. God himself is becoming the sacrifice for his people. So it is new and it's what God has always done. He has always been saving his people. He has always been fighting for them, even in their unfaithfulness. 
He has never left them, even when they are scattered. Hold on to that. But has gathered them back up, and now he is pouring himself out. He is the sacrifice. His blood of the covenant. So it is a new covenant. And it's the same covenant. No Old Testament, no Jesus. Jesus then says something very interesting that no one ever preaches on, but it's very interesting. Truly, I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. It seems possible historically that Jesus is fasting. Um, Even though it's the Passover, there is no mention of Jesus eating. It seems possible he's fasting or at least abstaining from alcohol. On the cross, he will be offered wine, and he does not drink it. So he fulfills this own prophecy. This is the last mention of the kingdom in Mark, which is also interesting. Remember that Jesus began his ministry. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So what we're seeing now, what's unfolding now, is the beginning of this this fulfillment. The kingdom was at hand, and now it's here. And yet, Jesus says, I'm not, but I will only drink in the kingdom. So what's going on? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, The kingdom is unfolding before them, and yet there is still something to come. Already and not yet. Jesus is always the Messiah and has yet to be revealed fully as the Messiah. The saving work of God, God's liberation of his people, bringing them through the waters of sin and death by his blood has happened, and yet we're going to see there is more work to be done. There is more that will unfold. This is how God always operates. (laughs) God has already saved, and yet we suffer. And we wait, and we watch. This is Advent. So Jesus now predicts, in verse 26 um, and on, when they had sung the hymn, another um, component of Jewish table fellowship. You would share bread, you would share wine. It actually says hymns, it is likely psalms. They are singing psalms. They went out to the Mount of Olives. So they've been in Jerusalem, they now go out, enter, and leave. Do you remember the significance of the Mount of Olives? Zechariah. Zechariah had said the Mount of Olives will be the... um, the location, the scene for this final cosmic battle where God will win a decisive victory for his people. The Mount of Olives is also where David goes in 2 Samuel to hide after being betrayed by a friend. So that's interesting. And then Jesus quotes this verse, you will all become deserters, he says. Who will betray Jesus? Everyone. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd 
and the sheep will be scattered. This is Zechariah 3, verse 7. It's going to be very important for the whole Gethsemane pericope. But after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now, Peter's response here is interesting. Peter, as always, being the spokesman of the disciples, said to him, even though all become deserters, I will not. Now, see, here's the thing. If I'm Peter, I'm like, what do you mean raised up? And how are you getting to Galilee? What are are you talking about? But Peter's like, I'm not going to desert. This is the continuation of surely not I. Surely not I. The disciples, once again... (laughs) are focusing on themselves so much that they've missed what's going on right in front of them. Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial is in all four Gospels. The anointing and the denial. This is very interesting. There's little differences in detail. Will the cock crow once or twice? Stuff like that. In verse 27, Jesus says, you will all become deserters. The word deserter there is the Greek word scandalon. It it means um, a stumbling block. We heard about this when Jesus says, anyone who puts a stumbling block, a scandalon, before one of these little ones, it would be better if a millstone were tied around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It's also, this is so interesting, the same word in Mark 4, 17, which is talking about, wait for it, the sower and the seeds. Every week you're like, God, Barbara just won't stop talking about these dang seeds, like just agriculture all over the place. Yes. But here's why. In the parable of the sower and the seeds, there are seeds that fall away scandal on at the time of persecution so see here it's not just tripping it's literally you will it's not like you will desert and run away though that is what happens but you will fall you will fall away like the seed that seems to be growing but then falls away at the time of persecution and remember mark is writing to a persecuted church so this is a warning not just for the disciples but for those who can they be better than the, can they can they be disciples can you be a disciple knowing that there is a risk of falling when persecution comes. Jesus says Peter will deny him three times. There are Mark and sandwiches all over the place on this. Three times when they're in the garden, Jesus will go to his disciples and find them sleeping. In the ancient church, in the ancient world, under conditions of persecution, Pliny, the historian Pliny, records that Christians were asked three times, are you a Christian? Before they were condemned for apostasy to the emperor. 
three times. Are you a Christian? So see, all of this is in, the, is in the water. This, for Mark's audience, is not a story that happened a long time ago. This is their reality. So the question for us who live in this world that is so much safer and more stable for believers in Christ is how do we live as disciples? How do we learn from Mark's people? Where most of us, thanks be to God, will not be called to die for Christ. What little things are we called to die to? How do we drink the cup of which Jesus is to drink? My um, seminary professor, when he would talk about making the offering in church, when the plate comes by, you know, I have some cynical friends who... um, so they don't go to church because they don't like, Alleluia, pay the Lord. That's how they feel when the offering plate comes by. It's like, pay the Lord. My seminary professor would say, when you make your offering, what you are saying is, Jesus, someday I may be called to die for you. But for now, I give you this little dirty piece of green money. <laughs> this little dirty piece of green paper. I could spend that on someone else. And like the widow, I offer it to you instead as a symbol in the richness of that word that my life belongs to you. That I may, a recognition that I may someday be called to die for you, so today I will die to myself. It's an interesting way to look at it. Okay, we're doing great, people. Mark 14, verses 32 through 52. They are in the garden, a place called Gethsemane. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, you, you know, Gethsemane is one of the few places that's still, like, pretty preserved as it was. Um, I encourage you, if you ever get a chance, to go to Israel, to Jerusalem, to spend some time there. Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter, James, and John. What is this a mirror with? They are on a mountain, and he has Peter, James, and John. The transfiguration. A sandwich. A parallel. So hold the transfiguration in mind as we read on. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. This may be the first time, I don't know, so don't quote me on this, but it feels like this is the first time Jesus describes his internal state. Other places it'll say Jesus took pity on them, but, or he was full of mercy, he was full of compassion. But Jesus here describes his own internal state even to death, remain here and keep awake, and going a little further, he threw himself on the ground. Do you see the realism here? This, you can, you can picture it, it's cinematic. And prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I want but what you want, literally what you wish. 
So remember I said the transfiguration, which has the same characters, they're both on a mountain, was given in part to the disciples to give them strength. They seem to have forgotten this. Notice the drama in this passage. He went away. He threw himself on the ground. He is sorrowful even to death. And he prays that the hour might pass from him. Now, all of this has these huge cosmic significances. The hour might pass. The, this, for Mark's first readers, um, and even for us, would be an an hour of God's, of, of breaking in. Something, I'm not explaining this well. Give me a second. Something that is a moment, a decisive moment in God's plan for his people. Again, remember the Exodus, where you are to eat the meal, um, you know, ready to leave at any moment. When the hour comes, be prepared. And so this hour that Jesus is praying might pass for him has deep, deep resonances. Jesus does not want to undergo the physical suffering of the crucifixion. That is true. But remember, for him, this is also think cosmic. Remember the eschatological discourse. In that day or hour, no one knows. Woe to them who are pregnant or nursing. They will flee to the hills, right? And we posited last week that all of this has to do with this this cosmic, cataclysmic event of the death of God. The battle between the powers of sin and death. The powers of human evil and human hatred come face to face with the love of God and that this is the hour. This is the last battle. There is a cosmic significance here. This is the hour that we were warned about. Jesus is undergoing much more than just physical suffering. And he prays, Abba, Father. Interesting mixture of Aramaic and Greek. Bless you. It was trendy for a while to say that Abba is the more familiar, um, like saying dad versus father. Um, That's not really true. It's just Aramaic. Um, It is thought to be Jesus' personal address for God. Jesus likely spoke Aramaic most of the time. Um, He probably also spoke some kind of marketplace Greek. But it seems likely that he spoke Aramaic. It is attested to as a title for God in the very early church. In Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6, Paul talks about us praying to Abba, Father. It's one of the few, we're about to see the other one, few instances of Aramaic showing up in the New Testament. I don't have a reason why, I just think it's interesting. So then Mark tells us that Jesus prays that this cup may pass from him, the hour and the cup. Remember that the cup is a common prophetic Old Testament reference to the suffering of Israel, the punishment of Israel. The Lord will pour out a cup of wrath for their idolatry, 
for their faithlessness. And yet, here, the Lord God himself is the one who will drink the cup. This is very important. It's always important, before we even get to the cross, I'm going to say this, because it's crucial, to retain a Trinitarian understanding of the crucifixion. The Son is not pitted against the Father on the cross. This is anti-Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Spirit are always operating together. So, you know, some people, like feminist scholars, say, um, certain Christian feminist scholars have said that their problem with Christianity is that it's just divine child abuse. It's Jesus being punished, being abused by his father. Only if you don't believe in the Trinity. <laughs> but you can see when Jesus talks about the cup, he, him, God, the God of Israel himself is drinking the punishment prepared for his people, taking that on himself. So if we're grounded in this Old Testament literature, we don't have the divine child abuse problem because God is both, in some way, you know, we can't say that the wrath of God is not shown on the cross. Because scripture tells us that it is. It's too simplistic to say, you know, this is how we sometimes like to preach it in certain traditions. Well, humans were sinful. God is holy. Humans needed to be punished for sin. So God punished Jesus instead of us. That is one of the narratives of scripture. You can't get away from it. But it's not the only one. This cup of wrath, remember God's wrath is, is his wrath at the powers of sin and death. Not at Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is faithful. <laughs> he is the shepherd. And remember, who is the shepherd of Israel? God. He is the shepherd who will be struck and the sheep will scatter. The disciples, yes, but more than that. Oh, man, guys, this is going to be hard. I don't know what we're going to do. You may have to learn about the resurrection on your own. (laughs) So Jesus goes back to the disciples. We won't go back all three times. We'll skip through this. He tells them, he says, could you not stay awake? Peter has just said, I will not. I will not leave you. And then he falls asleep. Jesus gives him one job. Stay awake, watch, and pray. And they fall asleep. So if you ever struggle, like if you get up early in the morning to pray and you fall asleep, you're in good company. (laughs) The disciples also did that. If you ever feel a little drowsy in church during a sermon, stay awake, watch and pray. But, you know, the disciples didn't. And then he says this in verse 38. This is interesting. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember from Romans... Do we remember sarx versus soma? Two words in Greek for the body. Sarx is the condition of the body under the powers of sin and death. The body is good, is holy, 
but the, the, when Paul says flesh, he doesn't just mean, Paul is not a dualist and like, well, our evil, corrupt bodies die and then our good, pure spirits go to heaven. The body, they are weighed down, they are burdened, think cosmic, by the powers of sin and death. Those same powers that Jesus was fighting with in the wilderness in the very beginning. See, we can think about this this way. Oh man, this is good. Another sandwich that I, is not in my notes. I just thought of it. Um, this is why we're not going to have time to finish. That Jesus, early in his ministry, remember he goes into the wilderness where he is, Mark says, with the wild animals. And remember we talked about this would be a fairly common understanding of, um, of the, the powers of evil. Call them, you know, call them demons, call them fallen angels. Paul calls them fallen principalities and powers of these forces that are fighting God and Jesus triumphs over them in the wilderness. Now he's not in the wilderness, he's in a garden. And yet he is struggling, he is fighting, and he has called his fellow soldiers to align with him and they fall asleep. They are weighed down by, I think it's Luke who says by grief, but by sin, by death, by, by all of these things that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. So then in verse 41, Jesus says this. He's come back a third time. Are you still sleeping and take your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going, for see, my betrayer is at hand. Remember what this word betray means. We talked about it with John the Baptist. To be handed over. See this in the light of this cosmic struggle. Jesus, the, the general, God, leading God's people, God's army, has been captured and handed over to the powers of sin and death. The emphasis on his betrayal, again, is on Judas, one of the twelve, Mark is not letting us forget who Jesus is. With him there is a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This seems to be a band of people who have been um, probably hired, paid, by the chief priests to come and arrest Jesus. The irony here, Judas, as we know, betrays him with a kiss he says to him in verse 45, Rabbi, and kissed him. Both of these would be signs of respect. So Judas is using this, this very respectful, he says, you know, essentially like master. Um, it's as though he were like bowing to him. It's a sign of respect, and yet that is how he marks him for death. So then there's this very interesting passage. Um, They lay hands on him and arrest him. But one who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. 
Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? And it ends with, in verse 50, All of them deserted him and fled. Some people in tradition, they say, um, and it may actually be in another gospel, that Peter is the one who strikes him, strikes the high priest's servant. In Mark, this doesn't make sense because there's no mention of the disciples having weapons. The people with weapons are the, the crowd, this hired you know, band of thugs. Mother Barbara opinion, I think what this is emphasizing is that things are starting to break down. The people who even have come on the mission, this is like a mob scene. Someone, they've lost track of the mission and now they're just fighting each other. Because this is the way that, you know, if you've ever, if you've, if you've ever seen a mob, um, this is the way this, this like infectious nature of these things works. And then there's this other interesting thing in verse 51 and 52. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. My friends, this is a scriptural mystery. We have no idea who this man is. He is not mentioned elsewhere. We get no explanation. The church over and over again has come up with different interpretations. My favorite? Some people say it's a disciple. Um, Some people say it's John Mark. It is the author of the Gospel of Mark who is putting himself into this story. My favorite interpretation is that this is an allusion to those preparing for baptism. Some people say it's an angel. Um, My personal favorite is that Mark is putting in for his audience this, this neophyte, one preparing for baptism, who would be wearing a linen garb, and asking them the question, you, are you willing to follow? Or will you be revealed to be one of the, of the betrayers? Will you too fall away? If you're saying you're going to go through the waters of baptism, do you mean it? That's one ancient interpretation. It's one I like. You don't have to like it. There's no explanation here. We don't know who this is or what he means. Pray about it and see what the Holy Spirit reveals to you. Okay, we really have to start jumping around now. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Honestly, just be glad I'm here at all. (laughs) I'm using my get-out-of-jail-free card. We could go all the way to lunch and still have more to talk about, but you all need to do small groups. So, Jesus' trial. There are two trials that happen. We're going to go over them very quickly. Note these two trials. The first is with Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish council. It happens at the high priest's home. We know from historical records that the high priest is Caiaphas, though he is not named here. The most important thing about this is way down at the end, at verse 61, the high priest again asks him, he's been asking him over and over again, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? 
blessed one is a stand-in for the holy name of God, the Tetragrammaton. So he's saying, are you the Messiah? Are you going to call yourself the anointed? And remember, all of the connotations that come with Messiah, God's chosen who will liberate the people, and the Son of God, but not just God, the Lord God of Israel. This is a big charge, twofold. One political, the Messiah, who's going to, you know, try to overthrow the government, and blasphemy, the son, the equivalent of the Lord God of Israel. And notice how Jesus responds. I am. Ego eimi. The name of God in Greek revealed to Moses on the mountain. So when I, I've told you before, like, Jesus never calls himself the Messiah in Mark. But look at his response to this. I am. The last place we heard him say this was when he was walking on the water. Do not be afraid. I am. So remember, I started like the very first class. People are like, oh, and Mark, Jesus is just a human. He's, he's not really the son of God. <laughs> and Jesus comes along and ups the ante. Are you the Messiah? I am. In, I can't remember which other gospel, they, when they come to arrest him, they say, are you Jesus? And he says, ego, a me. I am, and they fall back terrified because they have heard God's self-description, the revealing that has happened to Moses. And get this, he's with the people who should know best. And the high priest tears his clothes. Jesus cites the Psalms and Daniel, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That's from the Psalms. Coming with the clouds of heaven. That's from Daniel. This is not ambiguous. <laughs> Jesus is standing before them revealed as the Lord God of Israel. So the high priest, not unreasonably, says, have you heard his blasphemy? And note this too, all of them condemned him. So Mark is very good here in that no one gets off the hook. All the disciples betray, all of the council condemns. You do not get to make a historical bad guy out of Judas or the high priest and think that we are not also somehow complicit. So then in Mark 15, 1 to 20, Jesus is before Pilate. He has been condemned under Jewish law. He now is handed over to the civil authority, handed over, betrayed. Pilate asks him this very interesting question, are you the king of the Jews? This is so good. This reflects a Roman... Gentiles' understanding of the term Messiah, anointed. That wouldn't mean anything to someone who's not Jewish, who doesn't know the scriptures. 
So Pilate interprets that as, are you declaring yourself to be a king greater than Caesar? the king of the Jews. That's his, his Roman interpretation. So see, when Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile, this is cutting in all directions. See how this is bigger than just the historical characters. Look to how easily the religious authorities align with the government authorities. This is something the church should always be aware of. We do not have a great track record of it. The majority of both the Catholic and the Lutheran church were like, yes, come on in, Hitler, that sounds good. Um, this is not something that we, that we outgrow. <laughs> It's something that those of us who worship the Messiah should always be aware of. That we, like Judas, like we are not some extra special type of evil. It's not only the extra special type of evil, we all have the ability, when power is at hand, to go along with those in power. There's not enough time, my friends. We haven't even gotten to the crucifixion. <laughs> we need one more day. The baby gave me one more day, but the schedule did not. All right. I'm going to beg of you five extra minutes before small group. Is that okay? Okay, great. We're going to... Uh, oh, Father, forgive me. We're going to breeze through the crucifixion. <laughs> and go to the resurrection. But I have a justification for it. I mentioned, if you are interested in... I mean, we could do a whole class just on the crucifixion. So I actually think I'm in good standing here. If you are interested in this, I've recommended before Fleming Rutledge's book, um, The Crucifixion, colon, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. She is not an academic. She's a preacher. It is still like 1,700 pages. So like, don't, you know, as she, like I said, as she told me, you don't have to read it all at once, dear. Um, but it is awesome. If you are more academically inclined, there's a book by Raymond Brown called The Death of the Messiah that breaks open some of these. Um, it's a more academic book but very, very good, that breaks apart some of the different motifs of the cross. In Mark, let's look specifically at Mark's account. None of the Gospels um, exposit the cross. None of the Gospels tell us how the cross saves. None of them say what's happening on the cross, cosmically or theologically. They just describe the event why? Because Paul already does it. <laughs> Paul is the expositor of the cross. He tells us what the cross means, and the epistles, the other non-Pauline epistles, and the, the traditions of the church. Mark's account is short and terse. Who is there? Simon of Cyrene, 
carries the cross beam. This suggests that Jesus is so weak um, from the beatings he has received that he cannot carry his own cross. Simon is not from Jerusalem. He is likely coming for Passover and is kind of flagged down off of the road. There is no sign that he knows Jesus, though it appears, we are told he's the father of Rufus and Alexander. These are likely people that Mark's community knows of. So Mark is is connecting the historical event of the crucifixion to the lived experience of the church. Then there is the crowd of passerbys. Remember, the crowd is a character in Mark. It's not always the same. It shifts. This is a reminder that Jesus is crucified on the side of a road. The reason the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the traditional site of the the crucifixion, is now in the city walls is that shortly after the crucifixion, the walls of Jerusalem were expanded. But at the time of Jesus' death, he was crucified outside the city. The soldiers who mock him, we kind of glanced over that part, and two bandits do not think Robin Hood. These are thugs. These are criminals who are crucified with Jesus. In Mark, there is no good thief. Only in Luke is there a good thief. In Mark, even those condemned to die with him mock him. What is the emphasis here? Jesus' total abandonment. He has been turned on. The Lord God of Israel has been turned on by every human being who has those who said they would follow him and those who were his enemies. In verse 34, we are told, this is 1534, he cried out with a loud voice. The more accurate Greek translation is he screamed, which I think the Bibles intentionally downplay because it's like, kind of gruesome. Here's more Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, Lamech, Sabachthani. This is the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are lots of theories about why these are the last words of Jesus in Mark. Some people get super theological and they say, well, Jesus is divided from the love of his father. That he, this is the moment, the cry of dereliction of his abandonment. He's been abandoned by every person in his life, and now he is separated from the father. That may be, again, Mark doesn't say it. It's also possible that Jesus, as a faithful Jew and lover of God's word, this is what came to him. This is the verse that, you know, have you ever had, do you have a verse of the Bible that rises to your lips in a moment of pain or conflict or agony or fear? Jesus does. This is what comes pouring out of him, God's word, 
in his lowest moment. And then he breathes his last. And this is the best sandwich of all sandwiches. This, for Mark, is the climax of the narrative. The centurion, the Gentile, who says, truly, amen, this man was God's son. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ the Son of God. So the question we've been asking over and over and over again is, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? Who is he? And what are you going to do about it? And the answer comes to us. It is in, this is such an amazing mystery, it is in beholding the Lord God of Israel giving up himself for his people, for the very people who have turned on him, for the bandits who mocked him, for the chief priests who have been faithless, for Peter who denies him three times, and still he pours himself out. And when the centurion sees that, he says, truly, this man is God's son. So when you're wondering what type of God you worship, remember the witness and faith of this centurion. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus on the cross. Now you know, of course, no Old Testament, no Jesus. But if you want to know what Jesus is like, you have to read the Old Testament. So think about that. Okay. Luckily, Mark's resurrection account is very short. Traditionally, and I find most convincingly, your Bibles may do it differently. It ends at verse 8. The Sabbath is over. The women come to the tomb, bringing spices to anoint him. they see what Mark just calls a young man, verse 5. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. Same word for the young man who runs away naked, interestingly. Matthew explicitly says it's an angel. Mark does not, though I think it's implied. And this is what the young man says. Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Here, back to back, we have the final two names for Jesus on our list. Oh, we forgot to mention, we need to add um, the son of the blessed one, the king of the Jews, um, and God's son to our list of names for Jesus that we've been keeping. If you have time, read these over in your small groups. We could go around the table at lunch. (laughs) It would be fun. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, locating him in a particular time and place in history. Who was crucified? Jesus, when he's predicting his death over and over again, does not usually mention crucifixion, but this young man does. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, 
this tells the women they've got the right tomb. There is no other Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Of all the people, the Romans crucified thousands of people. They were super, super gruesome. Thousands of people were crucified. We only know the name of one. In all of history, one person we know the name of who was put to death by crucifixion. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. And then they get this very interesting instruction. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. I love that. I've always loved that since I was a little kid. Peter, the one who was so sure, he gets remembered too. Go tell his disciples and Peter. That he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb. For terror and amazement seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. This is traditionally how Mark's gospel ends. It is possible and likely that additional pages were lost. But it doesn't actually matter because this is the tradition that the church has handed on. Let me tell you, preachers hope that it isn't the year we're reading Mark on Easter Sunday. (laughs) Because it's very hard. Like this year we'll be reading Matthew on Easter Sunday. In Matthew, you get the earthquake, you get the stone, you get the angels, you get the the sleeping guards. It's awesome to preach Matthew on Easter Sunday in year A. But when you have to do Mark, you get... They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What are we to make of this? What do we do? I love this ending to Mark, because it is so what human life is like. I've seen the transfiguration, and yet I fall asleep in the garden. An angel tells me that he is risen, and yet I struggle with fear all the time. Mark's gospel doesn't pretend that its readers are anything less than human, trying our best to be disciples. And yet, we are not left comfortless. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Except, this young man tells us, go back to Galilee. Go back to the beginning. Obviously, they said something to someone. (laughs) Because you're reading this book. So what if we take him at his word? What if we take, we who are trying to be disciples, who want to be the seed that falls on good ground, bearing fruit 50 and 100, 30 and 60 and 100 fold. What do we do when we are filled with terror and are afraid to say anything to anyone? Go back to Galilee. Go back to the beginning where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the very first thing that happens in Galilee. 
If you want to see the resurrected Christ, go back to the beginning of the story. Read it again and see what is different now that you know what kind of Messiah, what kind of God you are worshiping. Go back to the very beginning, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Does it begin in the River Jordan or does it begin in the empty tomb? Yes. Yes is the answer. So, in the doubt and fear and amazement, remember what you have seen. And when you need more remembering, go back. Go back to Galilee, to the leper and, and the, the demoniac, and look for the one who is stronger. And ask yourself how that strength is shown on the cross. What kind of God do you worship and what are you going to do about it? Mark's gospel ends this way because you all have to pick it up. You now have to go to the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. You have everything you need. You don't need a bow on it because you always can go back to the beginning. That was 15 minutes, not five. I apologize. Thank you so much. This has been such a good class. It is my absolute joy and privilege to be able to, um, to teach this. There will be, I will not be here, <laughs> I will be somewhere else, but there will be Tuesday Bible study in the spring semester, beginning January 10th. It's going to be co-taught by Dwayne Garrett and Bob Kuhn. Um, it will be about Joel and Revelation, which sounds like they're far, far apart, but trust me, they're connected but they're going to have to explain to you how. <laughs> Enjoy what's left of your small groups. I'm sorry we went over. And then come back for lunch. We will be here at 11.30. Thank you all, and have a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> Me too. <laughs>